Hey, Nikki, how are you, brother? Good to see you, too. Welcome. Good morning, Colts Neck Community Church. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? It is such a joy to see so many smiling faces on this beautiful, sunny Sunday. Doesn't it help when the sun's out on Sunday? Things just feel good. Well, we're so glad that you're here. Hey, this is a time where we pause, we reflect, we remember, and we intercede. We pray for the downtrodden. We pray for the discouraged. We pray for the sick. But we also need to remember why we pray. So it's at this time I like to ask some questions. Can I ask some really profound questions? You ready? Here's the first one. Is God God? Yes, right? It's not a trick question. God is, in fact, God. He is, in fact, creator, sustainer, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present. And that's good news. Why? The next question. Is God good? All the time. So when we come to a God who is God and a God who is good, does that good God hear the prayers of his people? He does. Does that good God who hears answer our prayers? Sometimes that's a little harder to answer, isn't it? It's a little harder to answer the question about whether God answers prayer. I like to pull up this verse, Jeremiah 33. Verse 3 says this. Here's the invitation. Church, listen. Come, call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Right after this verse, the Lord says there will be a time of trial because of your sin. But then he promises to heal them and restore them. So does God always answer our prayers? The answer is yes, but not in the way or in the time or in the fashion that we want. Here's the beautiful truth that our God is God, our God is good, and he's working for your good. Not only when he says a quick yes to all of our requests and petitions, but even when he says no, do we believe he's working for your good? That he knows what we need even more than we think we know what we need. When we come to him in prayer, the first thing is worship. And the next invitation is to trust. That he will answer our prayers. And it's always for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Lord, your word says, be still and know, be still and know that you are God, that there is a God in heaven. He has not descended from his throne. He is not asleep and he is not neglecting his goodness and grace. So God, help us to know that you are God. You are good. You are near. And yes, you are a God who answers prayer. Increase our faith. Deepen our trust. Renew our hope. And grant us joy as we continue in prayer. 
Right now, Lord, we want to lift up those who are sick, the discouraged, the downtrodden, those that need to know that there is a God who is good, who hears, and who loves. So church, who is weighing heavy on your heart this morning? Would you in faith speak out their name, knowing and trusting that the Lord knows more than just their name, but knows their trial, and by His grace is able to meet them where they are? Is there someone that is hurting or sick in your life? Would you speak out their name and just their name now? And Lord, we do want to, as someone mentioned, pray for the victims of the Hurricane Florence. God, that you would be near those who have lost loved ones and that you would, as we're going to study and be reminded of Nehemiah, you are the rebuilder of walls, the rebuilder of cities. We pray that the city on a hill, the church in North and South Carolina would rise up and shine your light so bright that people would look to your son. God, we also pray here in Colts Neck, Monmouth, Ocean County, the Jersey Shore, that you would continue to use the little community church in Colts Neck through our meager efforts to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ. So through our time, through our talent, and yes, our treasure as well, would you use these gifts for your glory and for the good of those who live in this town and in our state. Please multiply these gifts in Jesus' good name. Amen. 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 Well, as our wonderful ushers serve you and wait upon you, we have a joy to welcome some new members to the church. So I'd like to welcome up uh, Ray and Kim Rosman, Jill Paulin, and Tara Schlechter, church. Let's give them a warm welcome. These are some true, truly wonderful people. Come on up, come on up. And uh, it was a joy to baptize them recently. So they are... Uh, believers in Christ. They know Christ. They've attended one of our new members' orientations, and they are just altogether fantastic people. So we're really uh, glad and grateful to have you joining the church today. I'm going to be reading a passage from the book of Ephesians, which talks about and reminds us what the church is and what the church should be about. Ephesians 4.4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we consider you a gift. Thank you for joining this church. We have a simple practice here at Colts Neck Community Church to affirm them as part of the family. So church, do we affirm Tara, Jill, Ray, and Kim as Colts Neck Community Church members? We can simply say amen. amen. All right, praise God. Let me pray for you real quick. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these wonderful people. We thank you for the work that you're doing in them and you'll continue to do. Go before them, protect them, nurture and guide them, and help them feel the joy of serving here in this church and what you've called them to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Praise God. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ray. Love you.
Take a seat. Thank you. Well, we also have good news about our building project, and we have a brand new fundraising team. So I'd like to invite a couple people that I know and love dearly to come forward, Glenda Lakian and David Walsh. I'm not sure if other people from the fundraising team will be joining us, but let's give them a warm welcome. They're going to give us an update on the project. So this is Debbie Nelson. And if you came to the congregational meeting several weeks back, she is co-chairing this new fundraising team with David Walsh. And this is Tracy, Rob, and Karen. And everybody knows Glenn. <laughs> it's my new name. Everybody knows Glenn. Good morning, church. How are you? Well, we're really excited to be up here for two reasons. One, I came up to give you a little update on our construction progress. And number two, our great uh, fundraising team who you're getting to know and going to get to know much better in the days ahead has some uh, exciting news to share with you. Um, I've always considered this the little church that could and the little church that will, as you see behind us, uh, this incredible project. But this project, as you see here, reaches way beyond the four walls or the few acres that we're on here and reaches well into our community, not only around Monmouth County, around the state, but literally globally. And it's exciting to be a part of that kind of growth. And I give kudos to all of you for participating because every time you participate in something here, whether it's giving, volunteering, it resonates globally, whether you realize it or not. And that, to me, is exciting, this little church that could and does, in fact. Uh, even recently, I'm so proud of our pastor who has made us a community church uh, in reality. Uh, I was at a 9-11 event the other day where he was asked to give the benediction uh, by the mayor of our town. And uh, even in a larger scale, he was asked to give the benediction at the Monmouth County um, remembrance of 9-11 as well by our freeholder board, quickly becoming the Monmouth County chaplain over here. So uh, you can thank him for a lot of this, right? But just to give you a quick update on our construction process, which is alive and well, uh, as we said, uh, you overwhelmingly voted in favor of us moving forward with this project that you see up on the screen behind me. And uh, we are doing just that. But as we had mentioned, it was an 18 to 24 month window and it's still in that window. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Uh, Al Yudakis and I had the privilege of meeting with uh, the township. Uh, I've met with the mayor and others in the township and they are very receptive to what we're doing. Uh, they've given us their wisdom and some insight, so we've had to do some reshaping. That's not going to change it dramatically, but there is some reshaping in process, which we're excited about. And although you haven't seen shovels in the ground yet, we are moving forward. And uh, one of the reasons why we're moving forward is because of your generosity, which this team behind me is going to share a little bit about with you and give even more opportunity because we know there's ties and there's offerings and there's participation in so many different ways that you can participate. But you will see some progress uh, in the ground very soon. We're going to be doing some work around the parsonage and, and uh, around the area in the back that's going to start leading us in that direction. And we are uh, moving forward with Horst, our contractor, and excuse me, meeting with contractors in general, and there's so many other things that are going on. But I just wanted to tell you, be enthusiastic, be excited. Uh, the opportunities are going to be abounding for you to participate in making this happen. Uh, and keep in mind, every brick we put into here is going to serve generations upon generations until they go into eternity. So the work that you do here in this body of Christ will resonate for eternity. So I'm proud to be partnered with you in all of that, and we're excited about what's developing. So keep up the great work, team. Amen.
I'm David Walsh. I'm co-chair of the fundraising committee. I want to thank Glenn and the building committee, uh, the pastors, leadership of the church. This has been going on for uh, over two years now. There was a lot of thought and prayer and guidance and wisdom that has gone into this project. Um, as, Je as Glenn mentioned, back in June, 97% of the church members voted in favor of moving forward with the project. So we're very excited to have the fundraising committee. It's uh, Karen Burke Scott, Deborah Nelson, Tracy Fascia, Rob Mahorder, Rob's wife, uh, Meg Mahorder, Kathy Hallman, and myself. Uh, we receive pastorship oversight from Pastor Jim. All building projects require funding, and we've come to the church, the congregation, the members uh, for that financial support. We have an ambitious goal of raising $3 million. I'm happy to report today we've raised nearly 600000 already. So we've reached 20% of our goal, and we're just getting started with the fundraising efforts. Um, we're going to have many events uh, starting soon. Uh, Deborah Nelson's going to tell you about one that's coming up. Uh, we're going to do next weekend, uh, so she'll announce that soon. A uh, big way that we need participants is volunteers. Uh, we have a sign-up sheet in the welcome area. Um, if anyone wants to volunteer for any of the fundraising efforts that we're going to have, whether you have a talent that you can contribute, like uh, design or art or making videos, or if you just want to be a helping hand at any of the events. Uh, we have Fall Fest coming up, the Nativity, and a ton of events planned for next year. One of the biggest uh, things that we could use is prayer. Uh, we need continued guidance and wisdom, um, and we need the whole body praying for this uh, large project and undertaking that we're all participating in together. We're challenged by David's words in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Please join us in prayer with the leadership as they lead, guide, and support the body of Christ here at Colts Neck Community Church. So I'm going to welcome Deborah Nelson, who's going to talk about our event next week. Thank you, Dave. So we're very excited. Next weekend, we're going to kick off the campaign, and we thought that we'd be do something easy and fun. So what we're going to do is it's called Adopt an Envelope. And in case anybody hasn't heard of it, um, it's very simple. Um, out in the foyer, we'll have envelopes that look like this. Um, they're all numbered 1 to 200. And then all you have to do is grab an envelope, put in the a dollar amount that's on your envelope, and put it in the collection box. That's the easy part. Um, the fun part is that five envelopes will have a special gift attached to them so you'll just look for a special designation on um, five of the envelopes and you could be um, a winner um, you'll receive a free gift certificate from one of our local sponsors so it's not only just us coming together the community is coming together to support us also um, those sponsors are huddies fruitables perkins and colts neck pharmacy and then the most fun part is if we do fill every single one of the envelopes with what's designated on the envelopes, we'll have $20,100 towards our new buildings. Yeah. We, we appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, we're going to be in the foyer um, after every service. Amen. Well, church, can we pray for the finance team and the continued building project expansion? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray that you would guide us. We're not building a monument to our own goodness and glory. No, we are building a building so that people, seekers, prodigals, can come and be saved, changed, and forgiven forever. We want your grace, your guidance, and your glory for every single brick of this project. So please be with the fundraising team, the building team, and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, everyone. You can be seated. Really appreciate it. Great job. All right. Well, here is a wonderful guide to some of the opportunities at the church. So as we turn to our Bibles, and let's find the book of Nehemiah now. We're in the last book of Nehemiah. I'm going to talk about some ministry opportunities. For those of you that remember, we were supposed to have an event with Miss Clara Karen Abercrombie from the movie War Room. She lives in North Carolina. The good news is that she's fine, and the good news is also that she'll be here this Wednesday. So join us this Wednesday. We will have dinner at 6.30, but if I could ask everybody that comes on Wednesday nights to look at your pastor real quick, we're starting at 7. Okay, so arrive. If you want to eat dinner at 6.30, that's fine, but we can't push it off till 7.15 or 7.30. We'd love to have you come and invite your friends and family. We also would love to have you invite friends, family, neighbor to our Fall Fest. Take this card home, not just for your information, but to use it as an invitation so other people could come. Is there someone in your life where you could just extend this card and say, hey, this is a great event. Please come. The gospel will be shared. There is a men's retreat at the end of this month. I can't wait. And also a uh, fall cleanup this Saturday if you want to come help and take care of the facility. With that said, let's now find Nehemiah chapter 13. This is our last study in the book of Nehemiah. Deacon J.R. Renard is going to be reading from God's word for us. And then, as excited as I am to finish and conclude this wonderful book, next Sunday we start the book of Daniel. And I'm so grateful and excited to dive into the story of Daniel. You will not want to miss that. Once we found Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 19, let's please rise for the reading of God's sacred word. Morning, everybody. It's uh, page 41 in your pew Bible. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of the servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves, and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Lord, I thank you for your, your goodness and mercy. As we're about to find out, the enemy comes at us in all different ways and comes even bold enough through the front gates. I pray for those that are in the Carolinas that are suffering, injured, or just need your guidance. I pray for your intervention to help them through their troubles and to somehow use this tragedy to pull them close to Jesus and glorify you. 
I know that every time that we move closer to you, the enemy is always there to try to take our eyes off of Jesus. But I thank you, Lord, because of Jesus, we have been sanctified and made clean. And as your scripture says, because we have set our love upon you, you will deliver us and you will set us on high. We shall call upon your name and you will answer us. You will be with us in trouble and you will deliver us and honor us. With long life, you will satisfy us and show us your salvation. And we thank you so much in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, JR. You may be seated. It's on beautiful days like this where I'm reminded of a very special trip that I took all the way back in the year 2000. I just graduated from undergraduate college and me and two of my college roommates decided to take a journey across the country and we lived in a Toyota Corolla for 52 days. And during that journey, we traveled all over this great land that we're blessed to live in but of course, we were on a fixed budget as recent college grads, but our desire in the end was not necessarily to stay in the nicest hotels, but to see the greatest sights. So we went to go visit some of our lands, our country's most beautiful national parks, and one of my favorites was Yosemite National Park. Has anyone ever been to Yosemite? Yosemite National Park truly is a combination of everything we're looking for in a park. It has beautiful views, it has wildlife that truly is exciting to discover. One of the things we wanted to do, because we were so excited to be at Yosemite, was to go on a hike. And we wanted to see it all. So we went on a hike that would lead us to stunning waterfalls, majestic vistas, massive ravines, and even where we could potentially be exposed to some of the wildlife, like black bears. So we decided to take a single-day, 15-mile hike. We were young. <laughs> we started pretty early in the day, and it was everything that we would hope it would have been. As we hiked, we were just in awe of God's natural order. It led to not only inspiration, but it truly led to worship, so much so that we're seeing these waterfalls. We're looking out at these majestic views, we even see wildlife, and then it all is leading up to the crescendo, the pinnacle of being on the mountaintop and basking in the glory of Yosemite. We are sitting after eight hours of hiking on the mountaintop, looking at none other than Half Dome and thinking, life just doesn't get better than this. And then we had a terrifying thought in our minds. Oh my goodness, after traveling for eight hours up to the top of the mountain, we still have to go back down. We didn't have any camping gear. This was before smartphones, so we didn't have any GPS. There was no app for that. We didn't even pack a flashlight. So as we're looking at Half Dome, we're also looking at the sun, and all of a sudden, everything that was exciting about the hike now became terrifying. Those ravines, those waterfalls, the wildlife, 
Whereas on the way up, we were hoping to see a black bear. As the sun was going down and it was getting darker and darker, we were terrified of seeing a black bear. And I couldn't help but think, is this not life? That we all strive to reach the top of whatever mountain we're working towards. We want to be at the pinnacle of our life. We want to be at the pinnacle of our field, of our work, perhaps of our health, or we want to experience some kind of mountaintop of security, of pleasure. But many of us know, if not all of us, come to realize we always have to come back down off the mountain. When we come to the book of Nehemiah, we are reminded of this very powerful truth that helps us to make sense of not only our practical lives, but of this spiritual journey with Jesus. And here's the truth. Mountaintop experiences, this side of heaven, cannot be maintained. And who are we when we're descending from the mountaintop? When you travel up to the top of the mountain, you're using a certain part of your body. Yes, lots of muscles. Yes, mental determination, heavy on your lungs and sucking in oxygen. But on the way down, it may not be as hard, but you know this if you've ever been hiking. It's more dangerous. You're more likely to stumble and fall, not climbing up to the top of the mountain, but hurrying and racing down to the bottom. In Nehemiah chapter 12, as Pastor Ryan taught so well last week, this was the culmination of this rebuilding project that God had used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And now God was using his word to renew the people. So much so that the entire people of Israel, at least the remnant that is gathered here in Jerusalem, is gathering for a worship service that is filled with truly explosive joy. So before we look at chapter 13, let's remember where we've been to give context to where we're going. Let's remember verse 43 of chapter 12. The word of God says this, and they offered great sacrifices that day. If you're looking at the text, what's the next word? And they what? Rejoiced for God had made them what? With what? The women and children also what? And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You can't fit much more joy into one verse. They are at the top of the mountain. God had brought the exiles back. He had given them safe and secure places to worship and to find their identity in him again. So much so that literally there's, as Pastor Ryan taught last week, there's a choir marching around the city on top of these rebuilt walls. And not only is it individuals, and not only is it family with wives and children, but the joy is so potent and powerful that you could hear it from miles away. How many of us want to be at that church service? Now, if Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, was just how just a guide, just a manual on how to successfully rebuild the wall, then it would have ended in chapter 6. 
But no, we kept studying. And we were reminded, what was the purpose of the rebuilt wall? The purpose of the rebuilt wall was so that the exiles could come in and there would be renewal and revival. And if this were a Hollywood movie and we wanted to paint a picture of not only what a successful rebuilt wall looks like, but also a successful revival looks like, then the book should have ended at Nehemiah chapter 12. Oh, but how many of us realize that the real world and real life is found in chapter 13? Because what you're about to see and what you're about to hear is that after this mountaintop experience, God's people turn from their God, turn from their covenant that they made with that God, and return back to their sin, back to their old ways. And Nehemiah, as the one who's been called to not only be a rebuilder, but a reformer, says a simple prayer, and it's this, remember. Let's look at Nehemiah 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonites or Moabites should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Let's take a brief break right there. This was primarily the issue that they struggled with. You remember in our study of Nehemiah chapter 10, where the Holy Spirit was so moving through God's people that not only did they want to hear God's word, but they wanted to respond to God's word. It wasn't enough just to get things from God. They wanted to be right with God. So now they're confessing their sins and they're confessing the sins of their fathers. And it's leading to, it would seem, true change. It's leading to, yes, I believe, true revival. And now, when we come to chapter 13, after they all proclaimed and they all covenanted, made a spiritual contract with God that they would obey all the law, what's about to happen is that they are about to go back on all of their promises. I wonder if we see more of ourselves in chapter 13 than we do in chapter 12. If chapter 13 helps us to make sense of the ways that we, even after inspiration and even after enlightenment and even after the Holy Spirit so working in and through us, this helps make sense of our continuing struggle. Because as we look at the rest of the chapter, first three verses, God's word is read, and then God's house is defiled, and then God's servants are neglected, and then God's day, the Sabbath, is misused, and God's standards are ignored. Nehemiah is called and beckoned to return back to King Artaxerxes. And during his time away, the same people that were experiencing revival and renewal and made that promise and that covenant go back to their old ways, and Nehemiah has to come back and he has to deal with things. So much so that he has to take drastic measures. There's times in this chapter where Nehemiah is 
throwing furniture out the window. There's times in this chapter where there's pulling out of hair, and it's not Nehemiah's. There's times in this chapter where there's laying out of hands, but it's not for prayer. Nehemiah has to act as a governor, but he's not just a governor. He's not just a rebuilder. He is a reformer. I mean, think of it this way. Two thoughts, ready? If you've seen any kind of, let's say, practical success or momentum, if you were able to build anything in this life, does it ever, does this thought ever haunt you and your thinking late at night when you're by yourself? What if someone comes in and destroys everything that I've done? Part of the fear of success is the fear of not being able to maintain the success. What if someone comes in and ruins this rebuilt wall? What if I have people that are coming and taking away God's people's focus away from the God they committed to? And that's why in the end, Nehemiah's true hope is not found in the wall or even in the obedience of the people. No, he says a prayer. A prayer that he asks God to remember his efforts because Nehemiah's identity and his hope is found in the God of eternity. For example, let's look at verse 19, shall we? Verse 19, in relation to the Sabbath day, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath day. And I stationed some of the servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, listen to this prayer. Remember this. Also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This man who was called to be a rebuilder revisits his wall that he helped build. And this is so helpful for us. Ready, everyone? When he returns, he's concerned less with the wall and more with the worship. He's concerned less with his building and more with the glory of his God. This rebuilder came a reformer and his simple prayer is remember. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should store up treasure. Did you know that? Just not here. Don't store up treasure where moth and rust could destroy, where people, in Nehemiah's case, could come and thwart all of your efforts. No, store up treasure in heaven where no moth or rust can destroy. This governor had an eternal perspective and he knew that anything he did for his God could not be stolen or robbed by any other man. It wasn't just this governor that thought this way. 
It wasn't just this governor that his heart and his hope was found in what you just heard. Spare me, Nehemiah says, according to what? The greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah is calling out for forgiveness and grace according to what? Not the wall that he built, not the reforms that he did, but according to God and who he is. There was another governor, in fact, a president, who also wrote a letter, who also was reaching out and pointing to God's eternal love. I have a copy here of a letter written by none other than President Ronald Reagan. Now, politics aside, for those of us that think, all right, well, that's Nehemiah, that's thousands of years ago, what does this have to do with me? If perhaps you're a little skeptical about the authenticity of the scriptures, then let's hear it from straight up the pen of the President of the United States. He writes to his father-in-law, whose name is Loyal. Can everyone say Loyal? Loyal? Who's passing away from cancer. He doesn't have much time left. So this letter, this is a copy of the letter written from Ronald Reagan's very own hands. Ronald Reagan writes this letter beseeching his father-in-law, who is about to pass into glory, to look to Jesus. President Reagan said this, Loyal, I know, you, uh, I know how you're feeling. You doubt, but could I just implore on you a little longer? Talking about Jesus, he says this, Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place, would proclaim himself to be the Son of God, and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there were a total of 123 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Now I know that it's probably the hardest thing for you as a doctor to accept. The only answer that can be given is this. It is a miracle. But, loyal, I don't find that it is a, as great a miracle as the actual history of Jesus' life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death he did when all he had to do was save himself and admit that he had been lying? The miracle is that a young man of 30 years, without credentials as a scholar or as a priest, began preaching on street corners. He, Jesus, owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and he didn't travel beyond a circle of 100 miles outside of his hometown. He did this for only three years, and then they executed him as a common criminal. Listen to the words of Ronald Reagan. He, Jesus Christ, has had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived all put together. Reagan quoting John 3.16, the apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. It's astounding. Why is it astounding? Because the most influential person in the world at the time realized 
that his influence would come to an end. The most powerful world person in the world at the time realized that there is one person whose power and influence will far exceed any power and influence of the White House, that Jesus Christ was his hope, and he was hoping it would be his father-in-law's hope as well. Nehemiah cries out to God in the same vein, an influential man, successful man, and he prays a prayer to say, remember. And in fact, that's how the book ends. Let's turn to the last several verses of Nehemiah. Verse 30, he is addressing the initial problem and talking about how his reforms, at least initially, have taken effect, but he's not trusting in the response of the people, but he's trusting in the memory of his God. Verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offerings at the appointed times and for the first fruits. The last words of Nehemiah. These would be beautiful last words and meditations and desires for any man or woman. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. When you come to the scriptures, you're reminded that God is good and God has revealed his goodness in his law. We are reminded when we come to scriptures that God is good, but when we compare our goodness to God's goodness, when we compare our righteousness to his righteousness, we are in fact unrighteous and not good. And the good news is, is that we are not saved by good works. Good works don't work, church, right? The good news is that whereas man-made religion says do, Christ Jesus on the cross says done. That our hope is fully, finally, and forever on the good work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by good works, just not ours. We're saved by the finished, final, perfect work of Jesus, his perfect life, his substitutionary atonement, his victorious and vicarious resurrection. We put no trust or hope in ourselves to save ourselves because if we could save ourselves, then church, who is the savior? That's horrifying. If we could somehow by our good deeds purify our bad deeds, then when we enter into glory in eternity, who gets the glory? I do. That doesn't make any sense. Why? Because beyond the pretense and beyond all the facade, that's what hypocrisy means. Hypocrisies put on a mask. We know that we don't live up to God's standards. And listen, church, we know we don't even live up to ours. The good news is that we are looking for a savior. And the good news is that Jesus is the one we've been looking for. God saves us in spite of us to grant us the free gift of salvation. This is why the Bible talks about salvation as good news. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous. No one, no one, in the original Greek, what does that mean? No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This led George Whitfield to write, What? Get to heaven on my own strength? Why, you might as well try to climb to the moon 
on a rope of sand. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, in the end, we need to be saved, not just from our bad deeds. We need to be saved from our self-righteous good deeds. Do you understand that we need grace not just on our best day, on our worst day. We need grace on our best day. Even in our good deeds, there's a little bit of us. There's a little bit of pride. There's a little bit of ego. There's a little bit of vanity. We're trying to do good things in the end, in some small part perhaps, just to manipulate our situation so we can advance ourselves. The Lord sees through it. Here's the good news. The Lord knows us better than anyone else does, and the Lord loves us more than anyone else does. So in the end, what good works are we trusting in? The book of Hebrews gives you this very, very clear option. Listen to this from Hebrews 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through what? The sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Church, can we say once for all? Isn't that good news? But then he talks about man-made religious traditions that promise salvation. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which your Bible says can never take away sins. And in the end, that's it. There is no cosmic scale because in the end, all of our scales would proclaim us guilty. Our good deeds cannot take away our bad deeds. Jesus warned the self-righteous, self-sufficient Pharisees and scribes of his day. He tried to warn them that they're going to die in their sins even as they are deceived by their own moral ability. Do we die in sin or do we die in grace? That's the good news. That's the really good news. John Owen talking about man-made religion, he said this, Trying to be holy from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention onto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Are we tired of the self-saving project that we think Christianity is? I hope so. I hope we get sick of it. I hope it leads us to run from Jesus and let everything that is supposedly going to lift us up and exalt us, fall to the ground and come crumble to a thousand pieces. Why? Because we're saved by him and not by us. With that said, is there good news for good deeds? Nehemiah believes there is. The New Testament proclaims there is. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it's a gift of God. Amen? not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? Continues. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your Bible just said, the same God who worked beforehand. Ephesians chapter 1 says, like really beforehand, before the creation of everything. God was working for your salvation, not just your salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you are God's workmanship, and he has been working beforehand to work through you. So we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. We 
are sinners saved by grace so that we can let other know, sinners know that there is salvation through grace. James says it, James chapter 2, verse 17. So by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Salvation is not the result of good works, but good works are the result of salvation. Nehemiah is finishing his life, his ministry, his influence, and he's seeing how fragile his kingdom can be. And he's putting his identity and his hope in the God who loves him, the God who will not forsake him, but he's also asking the Lord that he would remember him. As we think about the last verses of Nehemiah, I'm going to turn uh, to Revelation chapter 14, some of the last verses in all your Bible. And it says this, Here is a call to the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, listen to this church, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What could this possibly mean? We don't know. And it's good that we don't, right? There is reward. But the greatest reward is to know the one who saves us. I can't imagine any mountaintop experience this side of heaven being better than seeing Jesus face to face, looking into his eyes and hearing those words, good, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the mountaintop that heaven maintains. You understand that? We can't maintain the mountaintops in this life to hear those words because of what he is doing through us in the presence of our good father. It's maintained for eternity. But then envision this with you. One last point. As we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. In whatever way, whatever fashion it works, we look to our left or look to our right. And then we see people that by God's grace, we are able to point to Jesus. Not by our power, not by our will, but by his working through us. And to think that I, by God's grace, help this person know Christ and know eternity is the greatest reward of all. That in the end, it comes down to love. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know that the law was given to reveal the holiness of the lawgiver. But if we understand we can't save ourselves, we look to him not as some kind of absentee landlord, not as some kind of oppressive tyrant, but as a good father, and we want to obey because we want to know him, love him, and exalt the name of his son. 
Our motives change. Our desires change. We're not trying to manipulate God to earn his favor. No, we know we can't. Now we're trying to respond with love. Love for him and then who? Love for each other. Freedom is found in this. Not trying to be everybody's savior. Not trying to fix your husband, fix your wife, fix your kids. How many of us try to fix our kids? We love, teach, instruct. Nehemiah did, rebuke. But we can't fix. When we're liberated and freed from our desire to be savior and to fix people, then we can love them freely. Love them as Christ commands us to love them. We're not loving them to get something back because we know we can't give anything back to God. We love them because Christ has loved us. We love them because that is the summation of the law. We love them because we hope in loving them, teaching them, sharing with them the gospel that they could love Jesus Christ forever and ever. That is a worthy goal. That would be a beautiful mountain. Amen? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah, and we thank you, Lord, for his prayer, that even Nehemiah the governor, Nehemiah the rebuilder, Nehemiah the reformer, had to cry out and say, God, remember, not according to his good deeds, but according to your steadfast love. So, Lord, if there are some of us here that are content in our self-righteousness, that truly do believe in some fashion that we are worthy of your love because of what we can do, oh, we need your spirit, God. We need your word to break down and demolish these strongholds in our minds so we can come to the Father, not angry anymore, not defensive anymore, not trying to manipulate him anymore, but we come as beggars, beggars looking for food. We come as sinners looking for grace. We come as rebels wanting to be sons and daughters again. If that's you, would you pray a simple prayer, a similar prayer that Nehemiah prayed, that even the president asked his father-in-law to pray? Would you open up your heart to the one that far after our time on this planet Earth is gone, will still continue to be the most influential, most remarkable, most significant person who's ever stepped foot on planet Earth? Jesus. It's all about him. Would you open your heart and believe anew? Believe afresh. In the end, all you need is need. Cry out to him now for forgiveness. Cry out to him now for grace. If you do it from your heart, the Bible says the Lord will meet you. Would you pray to him now?
Colts at Community Church in a spirit of prayer, let's rise to our feet, shall we?